And let me invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, you'll find it on page 1177 of the Pew Bible. It's page 1177. If you've been with us recently, you know that we are studying 1 Timothy and that we have just about really wrapped up chapter 1. Technically, we have one curious but important verse left. In verse 20 of chapter 1, Paul says that he has turned two men over to Satan for discipline. This is not the only time he says this. The same idea appears also in the book of Corinthians. We will return to that verse another time, and I hope to explain what I think uh, that verse uh, means and why I think it's incredibly important, actually, especially for the American church, the church today. But for today, I want to break into chapter 2 with you. Before we do that, though, just a quick reminder of what we've already seen, uh, because chapter 1 really gives the whole background to this letter, And it lays a great foundation for us. The background is that young Timothy, Paul's spiritual son, has been sent to Ephesus to confront elders in the church who are teaching other doctrine. What Paul calls literally in Greek, heterodoxy, other teaching. He says that at the end of verse 3. We don't know the exact form of this false teaching, but we know that it revolved around the study of Jewish myths and genealogies. We also know that these false elders wanted to be called rabbi. Christianity at this time was a tiny, hated sect that most people saw as a cult. It was open for persecution by both Jews and Gentiles. So the elders were certainly drawn by the relief that came as they reassociated themselves with Judaism in some way. Paul uses chapter 1 to rebuke this drift from truth. He states emphatically that these men don't have the first clue about how to use the Torah, the law, As a a premier Jewish scholar, Paul is perfectly equipped to dismantle their interpretations, but he also speaks personally. Their drift back into some kind of Jewish mysticism was not just bad theology, it was also a denial of what God had done in Paul's own life. And so Paul speaks in chapter 1, doesn't he? of his conversion. He describes himself as the worst of sinners, saved not by mysticism or law-keeping, but by the free grace given him in the Lord Jesus Christ, or as he would have said it, the Lord Joshua, the Messiah. With all this in mind, the chapter ends with Paul urging Timothy to fight the good fight. This fight, as we noted last time, must be fought with both hands. With one hand, we grip the faith, the truth about Christ, what the pastoral epistles call the faithful or trustworthy sayings. With the other hand, however, 
we must hold on to a good conscience. Only by living in obedience and dependence on God will we have the strength to fight for truth. Throughout these letters, Paul would, not eat, would come to this emphasis again and again, putting equal emphasis on believing and living. Timothy must be careful to watch himself and to watch the doctrine, purity of life and purity of doctrine. All that brings us now to chapter 2 and an important transition that you can clearly see in your English Bible and in the original Greek. Beginning in chapter 2, verse 1, Paul will now move from laying the foundations to giving specific instructions to Timothy. Here are the things, starting in chapter 2, that Timothy is to do, to work on with this church in order to address the rottenness that has gotten into their fellowship. In Greek, chapter 2, verse 1 begins, I urge you, therefore. Today I want to look with you at Paul's first remedy, what he was calling them to do and why he wanted them to do it. So if you would, please stand as I read God's word to you, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 8 of chapter 2. The Holy Spirit, speaking through Paul, writes these words. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. This is God's word. Let's now pray and ask his blessing on it. Father, through your Holy Spirit, you have just commanded that the church be a place where prayer resides in great fullness, where prayers and supplications and intercessions and thanksgivings are offered by men as they lift holy hands in your name. And so we come together now as a body in prayer and ask your blessing on the reading and now the preaching of your word. Open our hearts to receive it and to understand it. Drive out of our hearts misunderstanding and doubt. And help us to rejoice in Christ our Savior, who even now is saving men, women, and children from every tribe and every nation. Bless us in him and strengthen us in him. For we pray it in his name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated.
I've got my work cut out for me this week and next week, so you can pray for me, maybe a little more than usual. Because 1 Timothy chapter 2 is one of the most heavily and passionately debated chapters in the New Testament. In the first part of the chapter, what I just read, Paul seems to say, on the surface at least, that God wants everyone to be saved. And yet in many other places, like Ephesians 1, Romans 9, John 17, Paul seems to say, or Jesus seems to say, that God has never intended that all people be saved. That God has already chosen, in fact, those he will save. Jesus himself in John 17, as we've been studying it with Pastor Trefskar, he says that he's not praying for everyone. He's not praying for everyone, just as he's going to the cross. He's not praying for the world, he says, but only for those that have been given to him. Jesus also tells people throughout his earthly ministry, he'll say to people at different times, you can't come to me because you're not part of my flock and you can't hear me because you don't belong to me. In fact, all Bible-believing Christians, wherever you come from this morning, if you're a Bible-believing Christian at any point, uh, we all believe, at least at some level, that God does not will everyone to be saved. He's not decreed it. We know that God has prepared a place called hell and that if he wanted everyone to be saved, he could do it because he can do all things. We have to face the fact that Satan was made by God. God didn't make Satan evil, but he did make him. And more importantly, God allowed him to come to earth and allowed him to tempt our first parents. So what is Paul about here when he speaks of God's love for all men or when he says that God longs for all to be saved? The second part of chapter 2 is equally difficult, especially today. More and more churches are ordaining women to ministry. In order to get around chapters like this, they argue that the Bible was written a long time ago and that Paul was only speaking to a particular situation going on in Ephesus. But those same arguments can then be used to undermine every letter written by Paul, since every letter written by Paul was occasional was written into a particular situation. On top of all those debates, this section is personally hard and emotionally hard because men can be abusive and because so many men have used their church authority to belittle and abuse women. In fact, as we will see, there is evidence that this very thing is going on in Ephesus as this letter is being written. How can men and women receive the same Holy Spirit and be ultimately spiritually equal and yet women be forbidden from ruling office in Christ's body, the church? So we have a difficult chapter ahead of us, but I don't want to leave it there. This is God's eternal, timeless, and inerrant word. The trouble is not in the chapter. The trouble is in me, and it's in you. We need this chapter precisely because it pushes our buttons. We need to hear hard things because, isn't it true, 
that the hard things are often the very things that are most necessary. So please join me this week and over the next two weeks and other following weeks perhaps as well as we study these difficult but important verses. This morning I want though to look just at with you at verses 1 through 7 of chapter 2. I'm not actually going to even do this whole section, get into every verse. There's just so much here that we need to think about. But today I want to give you two points. I want to kind of ask two questions and answer them. And my hope is that if we answer these questions well, our next sermon on these verses will sort of just fall into place for us in coming weeks. So today, two questions. What is going on here? What is going on here? What is the context for what Paul is ordering in these verses? And then secondly, what exactly is he calling the church to do? So big picture questions this morning. What exactly is going on here? And what is he calling on the church to do? Next time we'll see all the reasons he gives for why they must do it. But today I want to focus on what he's asking them to do and what it all means So let's begin by trying to understand through the Bible what is happening in these verses. To make sense of these verses, I need to tell you for a moment a little of the story of the Old Testament and a little about what the Bible tells us about this church. So bear with a little history here because I think it will pay off uh, fruit for us in our study. You need to understand, and the Bible shows us this, um, you need to understand that for centuries, Bible-believing, Old Testament-believing Jews had died, sometimes brutally, in order to maintain their unique identity. The Greeks had tried to break them. They outlawed circumcision, they built coliseums in their towns, and they tried to force the Jews to become Gentiles. The great powers of the age, Greece and Rome, viewed Judaism as a backward faith whose time had come. At some points, the persecution was overwhelming, and I can just tell you, having read some of the history, it's sickening and probably beyond what you would even imagine. It's one of the great mysteries of history, how the Jews survived these centuries of brutality. Hanukkah is the yearly celebration of this survival of the period leading up to the birth of Jesus. In these centuries, the Jews learned to separate themselves from the Gentiles in order to preserve their faith. Tax collectors and prostitutes, people who embraced Gentile subjugation, were cast out of the synagogue, excommunicated, not just as sinners, but as traitors to their own people. Meanwhile, righteous Jews were constantly scandalized by their own rulers, men called Herod, who were often Gentile at heart, even if they had some Jewish blood in their veins. Men like Peter and men like Paul grew up under these conditions. Everywhere they went, there were reminders that their country was being subjugated, not just militarily, but culturally, religiously. Rome, much like the United States, did not just want their money 
It wanted their lives, their hearts, and their families. And so when men like Peter and Paul thought about the coming of the Messiah one day, they imagined a day when the nations would finally be punished. Israel would be set up as a pure and holy nation, and traitors, people like Matthew the tax collector, would be judged because they did not look with faith to the arrival of the Messiah. This is why the disciples abandoned Jesus at his crucifixion. This is why Peter took a sword and tried to start an insurrection in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is why the book of Acts opens with the disciples asking the newly resurrected Jesus, will you now set up the kingdom of Israel? This is why Peter, even after Pentecost, had to be rebuked by Paul because he had begun to separate himself from Gentile Christians, no longer eating with them. Maybe I can put it this way. This has been helpful for me. Maybe it be, can be helpful for you. When the Jews of Jesus' day thought about the coming of Messiah, they thought about it much as you think today about the second coming of Christ. But what do I mean? When you think of Jesus' return, you think of his coming, right, in final judgment on his enemies, gathering his people into glory. You think of a day of vindication where instantly all God's enemies will be overcome with fear and where all things will be put right. And you are right to think that way because the New Testament clearly teaches that Jesus' second coming will look like that. The book of Hebrews, you probably have noticed, is dedicated to the idea that Christ's second return will bring a final judgment, and so we better listen to him because this is the last age of the world. That is how you rightly think about Messiah's second coming. But that is also how most first century Jews, men like Paul and Peter, thought about the coming of Messiah in their day. So when Jesus came, when he came, and he loved and he ate with excommunicated Jews, men like Matthew and his friends, when he came not to destroy, but to seek and to save the lost, when Jesus did all these things, people were bewildered. The Messiah had come, the kingdom had come, the miracles made it evident that the kingdom had come, but instead of punishing the nations and killing God's enemies, the Messiah had come to save the nations and to die on a Roman cross. This was unimaginable at the time. This is why, despite Jesus' clear predictions, not one, not one of his disciples could understand or accept his crucifixion. This is why in the book of Acts, Paul could get up in front of a group of Jews and preach Jesus as the Messiah, and they actually would listen respectfully. But the text tells us that the very moment that Paul mentioned the mission to the Gentiles, the people called for his immediate execution. Now, I'm starting this way because I want you to understand something that I think can open up uh, the New Testament to you, both in public preaching and in private study. The greatest struggle of the early church, 
The most explosive debate in the early church was this. Is the message of the Messiah really for the nations? And if so, how is it that Jews and Gentiles belong together in Messiah Joshua's church? Or to put it another way, how Jewish must a Gentile become in order to be a Christian? Or to put it one last way, who is justified and how are they justified? This was, if you read Acts and the epistles, this was the question that prompted the church's debates and prompted the one great general council of the church recorded in scripture in Acts 15, the Jerusalem council. It met to deal with these issues. But this massive scandal, this massive theological debate animates so many of the most famous parts of your New Testament. I can't possibly do justice to this in our time today, but can I give you two quick examples and maybe open your eyes a little to what's being said there. First, first of all, go with me tonight to an evening, an evening scene, Jesus and Nicodemus. We can hardly imagine today, most of us not being Jewish, we can hardly fully appreciate this moment. But Jesus is sitting with one of the leading Jews in all of the world when he says these words to the bewildered Nicodemus. Nicodemus, God, the God of Moses, so loved the Goyim, the nations, that he sent his only begotten son, that whoever, all peoples, should believe in him might have eternal life, which for Nicodemus meant the kingdom. This was not a statement about Calvinism or Arminianism. That is to entirely miss the point. The shock that overcame Nicodemus in John 3 was this, that the Messiah had come for the nations, not to destroy them, but to save them, and that the Messiah was offering them nothing less than eternal life with Yahweh. These same shocking words and ideas are ones that Paul struggled very deeply with. We looked at this briefly in the past, a recent set of sermons. It's hard for us, again, to fully appreciate what it meant to Paul to say in chapter 1 of this letter that he, Joshua the Christ, came into the world to save what? Sinners of whom I am chief. Now remember, in Judaism and in the Old Testament, sinner was not just a generic word for what we all do. Today, we would all raise our hands and say, I'm a sinner. But in Rabbi Paul's world, a sinner was someone living in open defiance to God's word. Sinners were Jewish girls who became prostitutes to the Roman occupying soldiers. Sinners were Jews who became extorters for Rome called tax collectors. Paul's, Paul's greatest shock came when he realized that he was that kind of sinner himself, that the very people he had looked down upon his entire career were in fact the people Messiah had come to save. And thank God 
because he was chief among them. Now back to Ephesus. Remember in chapter 1 that these false elders were teaching Jewish myths and genealogies and that they wanted to be called rabbi. So it's no surprise, really, is it, that the church has become increasingly exclusive. In fact, the threat was so great, the struggle was so intense in Ephesus, that look at verse 7. Paul feels the need to swear. He says, I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. I was really appointed to this gospel mission to the Gentiles. This really is from God. Now, why would Paul, why would the apostle Paul, who had worked miracles in this church, why would he feel the need to say something like that? Who could possibly think that Paul was a liar? Verse 7 is so helpful in keying us into what is really happening in these verses. Paul says this because the whole idea of a ministry to the Gentile world was so controversial, so problematic. This is why the Galatian church was already turning back to the laws of Judaism. This is why in Paul's letter to this church, the the letter of the Ephesians, Paul has to remind them that Jesus has broken down the wall of separation. And then he writes, there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Those weren't just random points. They were profound statements about what the Messiah had done and was doing in the world. Of course, this wasn't distant, you know, some distant theoretical theology for Timothy. It was deeply personal. Remember, Timothy was young and he was half Gentile. Most Christians at this point in history were Jewish. Most of his congregation were Jewish or Jewish proselytes, people deeply embedded in Jewish life. They may have found it difficult. They may have found it difficult to listen to a young half-Gentile on Sunday morning. With this in mind, Paul had already taken Timothy in Acts chapter 16, earlier in his ministry, and had him circumcised as an adult in a vain attempt to make his ministry easier. But even this could not remove the reality of the conflict. Timothy himself embodied the greatest conflict of the early church. How could Jew and Gentile exist together in Messiah's new community? And behind that question, the even greater question, who is justified before God? Now, if I have lost you at all in this walk through uh, the Old and New Testament, uh, please return tonight for our question and answer. You can ask me anything you want. Love those times. Looking forward to that this evening. But I, I did this, and it's not my normal practice to go into so much background, but I did this because I really believe that if you can understand that, you can understand this passage, and it all falls together. You can stop reading verses 1 through 7. We need to do this as a Christian faith. Stop reading verses 1 through 7 as a proof text for current theological debates we're having and rather hear it as it was intended. This is not a theologically precise statement about Arminianism. Paul did not sit down and write this letter and say, now I'll show those Calvinists 
I'll write verses 1 through 7. They'll never see this coming. In fact, actually, the Greek words here, the words all men, they're used throughout these verses, are used by Paul throughout the Greek New Testament. And quite often they don't mean all men. They, all, they mean all men of a certain part or all sorts of men or all mankind generally. The meaning here then is clearly not about making someone's proof text. But rather the sense here is all men, the nations, all mankind, all kinds of people. Verse 2 confirms that for us because you see what Paul is concerned about. He explains it immediately. They are to resume, this church is to resume public prayers for kings and for all those in authority. This church, and this can happen today to us, but this church was collapsing in on itself. It had lost its outward focus and its love for lost nations of the world. This ugly theology had taken hold, such a hold, that Paul needed to say to them, I'm not lying. This is real. This is what God wants. He knows that some in the church, some in the church, the false elders, have no desire and no interest in praying for the nations. That is what's going on here. That's what's at stake. The Messiah's victory, as we heard read from Isaiah, the Messiah's victory is not to be limited to the people of Israel, but as Isaiah prophesied, the nations are to be called. So first of all, what's going on here? This is not a proof text for some kind of Arminian Calvinist debate, the modern debates that we are having. They're rather, it's a passage about what God is doing in the world. And the struggle here is not the details of does God love every person the same way? Has he desired all to be saved or decreed all to be saved? We have other passages that deal with that. The issue here is the prayer life of the church and their lack of love for the people around them. And that brings us to the second question I want to answer this morning. Second, in light of this, what does, what exactly does Paul urge Timothy to do about the problem? What remedy does Paul recommend to Timothy and this church to cleanse them of this tribalism? Look at verse 1. Paul writes, first of all then, or of first priority, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions. Paul's first remedy is for Timothy to restore the pattern of prayer that he had established when he founded the church. Timothy is to start with the prayer life of the church. As verse 8 and following makes clear, we're talking here about public prayer. That's why I read verse 8. We're talking about something that would happen in this kind of gathering. Now, this has implications for our private prayer life. I completely agree with that. But the vision here clearly is public prayer. Now, isn't it striking? And just take a moment to think about this. Isn't it striking that Paul's first remedy in this letter is about public prayer? I wonder how many of us, including myself, have ever really even thought about this as a core part of what the church is about. Being an American, being an American, when I think of solving a problem in the church, 
my first thought is always action. Let's form a committee. Let's create a new ministry. Let's do something big and something we think will be immediately successful. We are a nation of entrepreneurs, and that's great. But because of that, our first instinct is to do. And if we're honest, we often like to act big, and then we pray later if things start falling apart. So isn't it remarkable that Paul goes on in chapter 2 and says, to remediate what's happening in this church, to heal this church, it starts with your prayer times. And this isn't just a one-time thing in 1 Timothy. If you go back and you read the book of Acts, you will quickly see, very quickly see, that fasting and prayer, fasting and prayer preceded, came before all the great moments and movements of the early church. In fact, it was, you'll recall, in a season of intense prayer and fasting that Paul was called by the Holy Spirit to go to the Gentile world. But we can go back even further than the book of Acts. In the synagogue before Jesus came, when Jews, faithful Jews were meeting in their synagogues, Remember, a lot of our practices actually come from the synagogue. The New Testament calls our churches synagogues on at least two different occasions because our, our worship comes from them. So in those days of the old covenant, when they were meeting in synagogues, they were praying, and they were praying for the world. In fact, they described often their services as services of prayer. You didn't always have a, a public preacher who was trained to preach but what you would have throughout the service is prayer. Josephus, uh, some of you may recognize that name, a great Jewish, ancient Jewish historian. He talks about how in his day, the synagogues stopped praying for the Roman emperors. They stopped praying because these emperors, they were terrible, right? Terrible men. Because they demanded worship, they were idolatrous, men like Nero. And so Josephus says, we stopped praying for them. And it's interesting to hear Josephus, who is not a believer at all, say that he thinks this played a decisive role in the Jewish war with Rome and the subsequent fall and destruction of the temple and all the horrible things that took place at that time for the Jewish people. He traced it back and he says, I wonder... If we had been praying for Rome, if we had been praying for our leaders, would this have all happened this way? Prayer is so important. It's an important part, you know, of course, of the ministry of the Lord, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It was a big part of John the Baptist's ministry. You remember in the New Testament that John and Jesus both taught their disciples how to pray and Jesus, our Lord, regularly relies on prayer to fulfill his mission. Isn't it striking that as Jesus approaches the cross, as he's just hours from the worst moments of his life, really the worst moments of human history in many ways, all he wants to do, all he wants to do is pray. I'm so pleased and thankful to tell you today that both our elders and our deacons begin their meetings with extended periods of prayer. And we often remind each other, and I'm so glad we do this, we often remind each other to encourage each other 
that we are not too busy for prayer. As elders, this often means, if I'm being honest, it often, often means we're staying a lot later into the evening, more like 11 in the evening. We are admittedly tired, but we've decided, we've decided together that thoroughly discussing the needs of our sheep and then having extended prayer is essential to our calling. The deacons have now adopted that same practice as well. It means later nights, but it also means better leadership. So Paul makes it explicit. He says, do this first of all, or it could be translated, this is to be your first priority. Restoring the church's public prayer life was remedy number one, priority number one. Notice also the kind of prayer that he has in mind. It's quite interesting, isn't it? They were to pray regularly and thoroughly for all people. In verse 1, Paul piles up four words to characterize this ministry of prayer. And remember, the Bible doesn't waste words, so these are not just redundant words that mean nothing. They're important. Paul says you are to make supplications. You are to make prayers. You are to make intercessions, and you're to make thanksgivings. You might recognize three of these words because we used them earlier in the service because Philippians 4 verse 6 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but what? In everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. All the major uh, commentators, Greek scholars that I've read, old, new, everybody agrees that we cannot today, I wish I could do this for you, but we cannot today parse out too carefully what each of those words means. What's the exact difference, you might ask, between an intercession and a supplication? I'm not sure we know. We probably can't really get at that. But what everyone agrees on and what I think we really need to see is that whatever these specific words mean, they're all plural. And Paul stacked them up for a reason. He used four words and made them all plural to press upon us, to press upon this church that their life together was to be one of prayerfulness. A life of constant fullness of prayer. And that's the picture here. Prayerfulness. Pastor Trescar and I have been criticized throughout our ministry on a couple different occasions by people who tell us, stop praying long prayers in the worship service. Stop praying so much throughout the service. Do you know how many prayers do you have in morning worship? And we usually have to go count. How many is that? I'll just leave this verse uh, for them. Paul is urging that all this prayerfulness be done again for all people, especially those in authority. Now, Paul clearly here doesn't mean all in the sense that we, can, we can't individually pray for every person in the world. We know that. Uh, some people like to come to this passage and say, all means all, but in this passage and really throughout the Bible, this phrase in Greek does not mean literally every single person by name. Rather, it means the nations, the world, all peoples. 
The Ephesian church probably doesn't know, they don't even know that there are people living in South America right now. Indians living in those lands, Incas and others. But they can pray for the nations and the leaders of the nations. The false elders with their mystic form of Judaism had put an end to all these big missionary prayer times. Paul wants them restored and he wants it first of all as a first priority. Now, brothers and sisters, prayer is tough on us, isn't it? There are times when it just flows naturally, but aren't there times when you struggle? I know I do. As I said, people have over the years criticized uh, Pastor Trefskar and myself for praying too much in the service, and my initial reaction to that, sometimes it's easy for me because I'm a sinner to just condemn that person as immature. But what I've learned to do, I think, over the years is rather to admit that I, too, with them, struggle with prayer. John Calvin talked to his congregation a lot about this. You know, his people, this is 500 years ago, his people didn't have smartphones to distract them. But, but you know what Calvin said? He said to his congregation, this is people who had way better attention spans than we do. But here he is saying to his congregation, I'll paraphrase what he writes. He says, I know we are really distracted. In fact, anything will distract us. And the Holy Spirit knows this. And that is why Paul is so emphatic here, so thorough in his call to prayer. This is a struggle for us. It's a struggle for the American church. It's a struggle for our church. It's a struggle for our individual lives. The great pastor John Stott, you may recognize that name. His work on 1 Timothy is sort of treasured. He's considered one of the greatest men to preach in the English language through 1 Timothy. He gave this very convicting anecdote when he was covering this section. Listen to this story he tells. He says, some years ago, I attended public worship in a certain church. The pastor was absent on holiday, and an elder led the pastoral prayer. He prayed that the pastor may have a good vacation, which was fine, and that two lady members of the congregation might be healed, and that was fine. We should pray for the sick. But that was all. The intercession can hardly have lasted 30 seconds. I came away saddened, sensing that this church worshipped a little village god of their own devising. There was no recognition of the needs of the world and no attempt to embrace the world in prayer. So what we're facing today as we struggle with prayer is not new. It is hard to pray, and it's especially hard to get beyond our everyday needs which we should, yes, pray about, but it's hard to move beyond that to the work of missions, the global picture, to pray for our neighbors, our nation, and our leaders. We have so much to pray about just within our own congregation that it seems impossible to imagine fully obeying Paul's teaching in these verses. I think once again, Calvin, he gets to the heart of the matter when he writes that it is in prayer that faith proves itself. That is in prayer that faith proves itself. You see, our problem with prayer is not screen time. 
It's faith, our lack of it. The reality is that we have unspoken doubts about the effectiveness of prayer. It almost seems better to just take action. For one reason or another, our prayer seems landlocked, limited to the most immediate needs and to our own inner circle. As with everything else then, we need Jesus. We need his forgiveness and his help. We also need his example. Jesus, you might know, unlike almost every other great leader in history, never practiced violence in his ministry. You probably know that. Well, almost never. You see, Roman money had the image of the emperor on it. That's why they didn't want to pray for the emperor. Roman money had the image of the emperor on it, and quite often with the image of the emperor was a saying, you know, we have in God we trust. They had Augustus, or the name of the emperor, son of God. So in a failed attempt to be pure, the Jews would not allow that money to be given at the temple. So you needed money changers. You needed people to come set up tables at the temple to exchange your idolatrous, profane money into clean temple currency. Those tables, those tables for money changing were set up in what is called the court of the Gentiles or the court of the nations. In other words, the Jewish priests and authorities filled the section of the temple designated for the Gentiles to come and pray, they filled that area with animals and commerce. It so enraged our Savior that he did something he never did and he never does throughout the Gospels. He became a little violent. He overturned the tables. And as he did so, do you remember what he said? He quoted Isaiah the prophet. Is it not written, he said, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Immediately after saying this, Isaiah wrote these words, the Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will yet gather others to him besides those already gathered. So may the Lord multiply our prayers in this place. May the Lord expand our prayers to include our leaders, our nation, and the world. And may the Lord make this a place of holy prayer for all people. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that in weeks to come and even this day, the Lord Jesus Christ would find in this assembly what he desires, a place of holy prayer for all people. And so, Father, we would lift up to you this day all the people of New Jersey, our leaders, those in authority, all the people of our nation, the people of Ukraine, and the people of the world, that you would have mercy on those who are at war that you would have mercy on those who are in danger, and that above everything else, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ would go into every place with power, and that all the nations would be gathered around him, for he is the new and living temple, and that together we might bow in holy prayer to our great Savior. 
Do this, Father. Gather these people to your Son, for we pray it in his name. Amen.